This morning, our first gospel reading will come out of the book of Luke, chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. If you'd like to follow along, it's in our Pew Bible New Testament section, page 83. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is a Messiah, a king. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered, you say so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they were insistent and said, he stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee where he began even to this place. We're launching into a new uh, sermon series. You're going to hear the text that Calicia read each and every Sunday for the four Sundays in August. And then in addition, there'll be a focus text. And today that focus text is from the Gospel of Mark, the third chapter, verses 20 through 27. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. And the crowd came together again so that Jesus' family could not even eat. When his family heard the crowd, they went out to restrain Jesus, for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul, another word for the devil. And by the ruler of demons, Jesus casts out demons. And he called them to him, that is, Jesus called the scribes to him, and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed, the house can be plundered. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this ancient word afresh to us this day. Would you speak the word that we need to hear? A word that may, in fact, change everything. We pray this in Christ's strong and matchless name. Amen. It's kind of hard to believe, but this week marks the completion of nine years together in ministry here at First Pres Atlanta. On August 1st, 2014, Katie and I, along with an 11-year-old Johnny, 
and a six-year-old Luke moved into the church's manse just in the adjacent neighborhood. In those summer months uh, that preceded our arrival here in Atlanta, I read books and articles and uh, essays that provided insight and encouragement for those like me who found themselves on the precipice of a brand new call. And from that content, I deciphered two prevailing schools of thought, guiding ministers, guiding pastors, as they prepare to enter a season of ministry with a brand new congregation. One school of thought encourages the minister to implement new ideas and changes early on in their ministry. The rationale goes something like this. More times than not, the pastor arrives amidst great enthusiasm, great anticipation, great excitement within the congregation. Some even argue that the minister has the most leeway and latitude in those early days to do something new. The logic goes that they should lean into the goodwill uh, that the congregation offers, not abusing it or taking it for granted, but patiently and lovingly and kindly introducing new ideas in those early days. The other school of thought is much more austere and flies in the opposite direction. That school of thought says the new minister should do absolutely nothing new for at least a year. The pastor should toe the line, maintain the status quo, and use that first year doing ministry reconnaissance, right? Paying attention to the existing ministries, listening to the stories the congregation loves to tell itself and the stories they love to tell others. Truth be told, I, I took these two schools of thought and, and tried to meld them together in the early days back in August of 2014. I tried to pay attention, I showed up, and I learned the stories. But I also tried not to be inflexible with introducing new ideas, trusting in the goodwill of this congregation, trusting in the openness that this congregation had for a new pastor and a new day within the life of the church. And so with that being the case, after about just six weeks of leading in worship, I had an idea. I thought it would be a good idea to remove the apostles' chairs. The 11 chairs that sit up front here, there's 11 because Judas doesn't get one. These 11 apostles' chairs, I thought it would be a good idea to take them out. And my rationale went something like this. I, I wanted to open up the choir loft uh, and the organ to the congregation. I didn't want to have an imp impediment here. Uh, I thought it would be a good idea to try to open it up and build more continuity between the congregation and uh, the worship leaders. So at our November session meeting, I pitched this new idea. And after some debate in good Presbyterian fashion, uh, the session voted to remove the chairs just for the Advent season and then put them back in January and then evaluate the responses from the congregants as to their experience of the chairs being removed. It was at that very moment when the vote was taken that the scandal I like to call Chairgate began. 
many in the congregation expressed their displeasure over the chair's removal. They talked about how the symmetry and the aesthetic of the chancel was dependent upon these chairs and how without them it was completely out of whack. The feng shui left the room. Some complained that they couldn't focus on the sermon as this neutral backdrop was now replaced by the open and busy side of the organ console and people would be staring through the preacher at the bald head of the organist. (laughs) Even some choir members, and you know who you are, complained because people, and more importantly, the cameras could now see their shoes, which added an extra layer of decision-making on a Sunday morning. The long and short of it was that it didn't work. It failed miserably. It was a bad idea. And so the chairs remain, the congregation is content, and our ministry together presses on in its 10th year. It's safe to say that the ministry of Jesus had multiple chair gates. The ministry of Jesus had multiple chair gates. Jesus introduced some really big ideas and acted and taught in ways that caused considerable controversy. Of course, the controversies connected to Jesus were exponentially greater and more substantive compared to Chairgate back in Advent of 2014. For in Jesus' ministry, if we were to make a comparison with Chairgate, it was like he removed the chairs on his own without a session meeting. He vowed to never put them back, and then he piled them up outside on the corner of 16th and Peachtree on July the 4th and set them on fire so that every peach tree road race runner would run by and watch them burn. That's how radical Jesus' ministry was. Remember, Jesus was accused of sedition, blasphemy, heresy, and disturbing the peace by the religious leaders of his time. Those leaders eventually asked the Roman authorities to rid him from this world to end his message, to end his ministry once and for all. And that's what they hoped Rome would do. And Christians know that is not what happened at all. I'm I'm calling this four-week sermon series The Problematic Jesus. And what I hope to do is take a deep dive into four discrete stories from the New Testament where Jesus' radical action stirred considerable controversy. And here is the big idea that grounds this series. I'd like for us to explore over the next four weeks, not just the radical activity or radical teaching of Jesus that was deemed problematic, but to pay attention to the fact that behind every radical act and behind every radical teaching was a radical truth that Jesus was trying to communicate. Behind every radical act and behind every radical teaching, there was a radical truth that he wanted his followers to discover. 
In other words, Jesus didn't have some sort of teenage uh, conduct or impulse control disorder, right? He, he, he wasn't deviant for deviance sake. No, in his radical action, which conveyed this radical truth, Jesus was unveiling the meaning of his ministry. Jesus was unveiling the character and the nature of God. Jesus was unveiling what it means to be part of God's family. There were those that deemed Jesus' ministry problematic. That is for sure. But the areas they deemed to be problematic, I believe, present us golden opportunities to understand in greater depth what Jesus was all about. So that's where we're headed this month, today and over the next three weeks. So the stage is set, and I want to turn our attention back to the text that I read from the third chapter of Mark. And many of you know this. One thing about Mark's gospel uh, is that there is no Christmas story. There's an immediacy about the telling uh, that Mark provides of Jesus' ministry. He, he, there's no creche. There's no angels. There's no announcement. There's no Gabriel. He just introduces us right away to the 30-year-old Jesus. And just three chapters in, a lot has happened. Jesus has already been baptized, he's been tempted in the wilderness, and he's launched his ministry in Galilee. He's also been, and this is important to know in the first three chapters, he's also been liberating people from demon possession, from demonic powers. He is freeing them from their grasp. And it's this particular activity that begins to raise the narrative of Jesus being problematic, both among the people and the religious leaders of the day. The section from Mark 3 begins by telling us that Jesus actually had gone home to be with his family. He, he could have gone home for a Sunday night dinner or a family reunion, but the family is gathering at a home, and, and crowds are following Jesus, and sometimes the crowds that follow Jesus are singing his praises, and other times they're talking about what a problem he is. And, and this, in this case, rather, these crowds are following Jesus and saying that he is a madman. They've watched him exercise demons, and it's in their logic, they believe that Jesus has the power to do this because, quite frankly, he's a lunatic. That's why he has this power. The scribes arrive on the scene, and they're a little more sophisticated. Remember, the scribes are the, the transcribers and the biblical commentators of Jesus' day, and so they want to offer a much more, let's say, theologically informed rationale for how Jesus is casting out these demons and freeing people from the grip of evil. Their interpretation of Jesus' problematic activity uh, is that Jesus must be in cahoots with the devil. That's their big idea. That, that he, uh, he must be uh, working in tandem with dark forces and demonic powers. And immediately, immediately Jesus uh, responds to their logic with a resounding, huh? Right? He, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? And that makes no sense at all. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Then in a masterfully subtle and poignantly powerful parable, Jesus reveals to them where his power to exercise demons really comes from. 
He says there's this bandit. There's this thief. And he's got his eyes on this strong man's house and all the goods that the strong man has. And the thief realizes that if he is going to be successful in robbing and plundering this home, he's not only going to have to commit the crime of larceny, he's also going to have to commit the crime of false imprisonment. He's going to have to tie up the strong man and then plunder his goods. Now, at first glance, the parable is striking because Jesus compares himself to a thief, to a criminal. Ironically, he'll be crucified later, three years later, as a criminal on a Roman tree. But he uses this image of being a criminal and applies it to himself. And, and we hardly think of Jesus in these terms. I've said it before in preaching from this text. No one ever prays, oh, Jesus, our thief. It's, it's hard to comprehend. We, we prefer uh, images of Jesus from parables like uh, the prodigal son, where, where we imagine Jesus to be more like the father welcoming the lost son home, or Jesus being like the great shepherd who leaves the 99 behind and goes finds the one sheep, or like the good Samaritan. We imagine Jesus being the good Samaritan, crossing to the other side to bring healing and help to that person who was gravely in danger. But Jesus as thief... It's not an image that we often think about. The parable does soften a bit when we realize that the strong man is Satan, or if you prefer, the strong man is the personification of evil, or if you prefer, it's that which represents anti-God. Whatever it is that represents anti-God. And parabolically speaking, part of Jesus' ministry, this is what he's saying, is to bind evil to bind the dark forces, to shut them down and rescue those who find themselves in evil's death grip. And it's here that the controversy reaches a crescendo. The logic of the scribe's argument that Satan is casting out Satan is self-evident, I think. It doesn't make any sense. How can Satan cast out Satan? And perhaps the scribes offered this illogical conclusion because they didn't want to admit the truth that was coming to light behind this radical and problematic action. The truth that would be illumined in the parable Jesus had just told them. You see, the only being, the only being who is stronger than the strong man the only being who is capable of binding Satan, binding evil, overcoming darkness with light, liberating people from darkness, the only being who's stronger than the strong man is God. God. And if Jesus has the power to bind Satan and liberate people from evil, then what Jesus is actually saying is that he is God. The radical action that Jesus breaks into the strong man's house and ties him up unveils a radical truth. Jesus is God, for only God is stronger than the forces of evil, sin, and death itself. And this, friends, is the good news I invite all of us 
to embrace this very hour. Jesus Christ, the one whom God raised from the dead, is the stronger man. And he is on your side. What does that mean? It means that Christ's spirit is seeking to liberate us from the shame we just can't shake. It means that Christ's spirit is seeking to liberate us from the darkness of addiction that consumes us. It means that Christ's spirit is seeking to liberate us from the dead-end nihilism we've committed to and from the vacuity of our own narcissism. It means that Christ's spirit is seeking to liberate us from self-doubt and self-harm and self-hate and self-degradation. It means that Christ's spirit is seeking to liberate us from our greed, lust, envy, and gluttony. It means that Christ's spirit is seeking to liberate us from a lie or a secret or a trauma by which you ultimately define yourself. It means that Christ's spirit is seeking to liberate us from our rigid and foolhardy belief that we don't need to be saved. As I close the sermon this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. It's not compulsory, it's an invitation. I do hope and pray that you receive it. I'd invite you to just take a posture of prayer, whatever that looks like for you, whether you're worshiping remotely or here in the sanctuary. Maybe you want to just simply sit still and close your eyes. Maybe you want to kneel down in front of your pew, kneel down at home, wherever you are. Maybe you want to stand. I want to invite you to take a posture of prayer, and I want to invite you into something we might call imaginative prayer, to create space where we can pray this sermon into our lives, pray this scripture message and this radical truth into the depths of our very being. And so as you enter into this moment of imaginative prayer, I want you to imagine yourself in a home, a house, but I want you to imagine that there is no escape from this house, that there's no way out. The doors are locked from the outside And I want you to imagine the stronger one. Allow the stronger one to take any image, any shape that your spiritual imagination allows for. And I want you to imagine that stronger one as the embodiment of that which holds you tightly in its grasp. The very thing in your life that you so desperately want to be released from. Imagine the strong one embodying that very thing. And allow yourself to feel the things you have felt before. What it means to be locked into this house with no escape and being held captive by this strong one. And now I want you to look at the door 
and I want you to hear the crackling sound it makes. I want you to see it fly off its hinges and land at your feet. And in the threshold, I want you to see Jesus the Christ, however you imagine him. He's come to set you free. Imagine him going to the strong man and binding him up. It becomes apparent to you that he is the stronger one, that he is on your side, and that he has come to set you free. Imagine him taking you by the hand and leading you through that threshold into a new world, into new possibilities, where your freedom is realized. Now imagine that by grace, such a thing is possible. For with Christ we declare, all things are possible. Amen.